0: Revelation 7 is on the heels of Revelation 6 where John saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, devastating scene, where these riders go out, war, death, famine, and pestilence to take life from the earth in the great tribulation, this seven-year period we've been talking about. The chapter ends by saying, this is the wrath of Almighty God, and who is able to stand? And the answer is no one. No one in their own righteousness, no one in their own strength is able to stand. But here's the good news. Chapter 7 tells us there are two communities that will stand. And this is very inspiring because I share with you the judgment is God's strange work. What God longs to do is save and heal and restore. And we're gonna get to some wonderful verses in this chapter, verses you didn't even know were in the book of Revelation, where God will wipe away every tear, where he will shepherd them and lead them in the fountains of living water. God has longed to be intimate with creation since the time he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we start here in chapter seven, and it says, "'After these things and I saw, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, "'holding the four winds of the earth,' that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, or any tree. Saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So we're going to identify these people. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000, of the tribes of the children of Israel. So these are Jewish people. There's some kind of revival among Jews here. The list is given, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin. Uh, some 39 times in the Bible we get this list. There are omissions uh, in all the lists. We're not gonna go through all that. The only thing we need to know is these are sealed. Now. Verse nine says, "After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. Now these aren't of Israel. Notice now they're of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They're overcomers. We see all the imagery from chapter two and three. And all the angels stood around the throne, the elders, the four living creatures. There's there's like a, now a grand reunion in heaven." And they're around the throne, and they worship God. 24 times the word worship is mentioned. There's a greater theology of worship in Revelation than any book in the Bible. And they say, amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, power, and might be unto the Lamb and our God forever and ever. And then they have a question. So we'll get one question out of the way. One of the elders said, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? He said, sir, you know, and he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And here is the character of God. And they shall neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Notice there are two distinct people groups here. Can anybody stand? Yes. The 144,000 representing Israel, and then there is a group from every tribe, kingdom, and tongue, and all through the Bible, these people groups are never linked together. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Revelation concludes the long arc of history that began in a garden when God created the world, specifically Adam and Eve, and put them into a garden of abundance. And these were God's marching orders, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. God wanted them to thrive. We will never know what that would have looked like because man chose against God. Man chose to be the arbiter of good and evil, to be his own God. And the beautiful thing of history And history is not only his story, it's our story. Because the story is God coming alongside of man. He's not ashamed to be called our God. He's not ashamed of our brokenness, of our nakedness, of our sinfulness. And that's why we love him so much. That's that's why we've come to Christ, because he's not ashamed to be called one of our brethren. And God comes into human history and he provides sacrifices. He provides in the garden. He provides for Isaac. He provides at the Passover. He provides Jesus Christ. And all through the church age, we're living through grace where God is saving mankind, healing mankind. And because God is a creator, we have a story and we have history. Now here's what you need to understand. If there is no God, if there's no creator, there is no history. Pastor Bob, what are you talking about? Follow me on this. Richard Dawkins, profound atheist, Uh, New York Times bestseller, believes that what you and I are doing right now, right? We got up on Sunday morning, and we're reading the Bible, and we sang a little, and we love each other, we'll hang out, we give, and we support missions all around the world. He thinks we're delusional. Now, he can have his own opinion, right? And a lot of people are being influenced by this man. Uh, His book, The God Delusion, has sold three million copies, and people are tracking with this, and there's other writers, Daniel Dennett, um, Christopher Hitchens. Well, in his book, The God Delusion, he quotes Sam Harris, who has written a book called The End of Faith. Listen to what Harris said. He said, we have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. Clearly, there is sanity in numbers, and yet is merely an accident of history that it is considered normal in our society to believe that the creator of the universe can hear your thoughts, while it is uh, demonstrative of mental illness to believe that he is communicating with you by having the rain tap in Morse code on your bedroom window. And so, while religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are. Now, I promised myself I wouldn't get into this. Can I have 30 seconds? Uh, Our core beliefs are delusional, right? And I understand, right, the fact that we believe the Bible's inspired of God, Jesus got up on Sunday morning, Uh, Jonah got swallowed by a fish. I get that. But you know what else our core beliefs have driven us to do? Scott Hamilton, raised in Philadelphia, chucks a million-dollar business to start charity water to bring clean water to the rest of the world. Our core beliefs force Mother Teresa and thousands of others to start orphanages in the poorest places in the world. To preach the good news all around the world, to bind up the brokenhearted, to start hospitals and orphanages, you see, you could shoot holes in these quotes all day. These writers believe we're delusional because they think the quicker we can wake up to the idea that we're alone in the universe, the better off we will be. There is no God who's going to shepherd us and dry every tear. The, the sooner we get this, the, the quicker we come to grips with this, the better off that we'll be. Now, they have every right to their opinion, right? They have a right to disbelief as much as we have a right to belief. But they never give us what I call the dirty little secret of atheism. The dirty little secret of atheism is this, that if natural selection is the vehicle, the blind watchmaker, as Dawkins calls it, that brought about everything you and I see, including human beings, if we're all just dancing to our DNA, you ready for this? This is something they never told you. You and I don't exist. Turn to the person today and tell them, you don't exist. Turn to the person next to you. You don't exist. I don't exist. You don't exist. My mom doesn't exist. Our kids don't exist. Everybody that we know and love doesn't exist. Shakespeare doesn't exist. Neither does LeBron James. (laughs) You're probably thinking, Pastor Bob, you sound delusional this morning. What's going on here? Well, think about it. We are, at least as Christians, we believe that we are a body, but we also have a soul and a spirit. One of the overlooked beliefs of Christianity is we have a body. Great is the mystery of godliness, Jesus took on this body, and we're gonna have bodies in heaven and the new world. We're one of the few belief systems that believes the body will be reunited with the soul. But if you're a materialist, and by the way, if you're a materialist, everything's self-determined. Stephen Hawking said that, John Pokinghorn said that. Every every Person from Cambridge and Oxford believes if you're a strict materialist, you have no free will, everything's self-determined. If we are only material, we are only biology and chemicals, then where's the real you? Now look at your body. From the neck down, you're just biology and chemistry. So where's personality? Where's feeling? Where's love? Well, it would have to be in the brain, right? And the brain's an organ. So if I love the eagles vanilla ice cream and my wife, and you like the Cowboys chocolate ice cream and your wife, it's only because our neurons fire differently. But it's all in the brain. What that means is we don't exist. What that means is when Bob Gaglione dies, he will never have existed any more than the dead deer I saw on the side of the road existed today. You know any famous deers through history? No, it's ridiculous, right? We will have ceased and never really have existed. Now, we know that's not true. We know that God is the creator. The fascinating thing for me in Revelation is Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Something started this. There was a mover. There was an ultimate mover. And this is going to finish. Genesis and Revelation. We know where it all started. We know where it's all going to end. And the beautiful thing about it, and it's right here in the midst of judgment, we see that human beings matter to God, that this really is our story, and God is writing it. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is it tells us this over and over again. Now, for years, people would open the Bible and say, oh, the Bible's this dusty old book of antiquity, and they would point right to the genealogies, the begats and the begottens, and what in the world was that there for until, no one cared, until Ancestry.com came along. Now, on your birthday and Christmas, people are buying you these tubes you're going to spit in, and we all want to know, who are my relatives? Where did I come from? The reason is because people matter, and the genealogies are proof of that. Now, they give us the line of Christ and some other things, but God is telling us every human being matters, every hair on their head, all the DNA. God has knitted everyone in their mother's womb, Jeremiah tells us. Everyone matters. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not only the heavyweights that get in genealogies. Rahab's there and Delilah's there. Sinners are there. Hebrews talks about the exploits of men and women who have done grand things for God. And and, and it's just a sign that God remembers and God knows. Even though we forget, God knows who we are and he cares for us. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you want to know what God's like, just read the Gospels. And when you read the Gospels, you realize Jesus really had no time for things that were religious, right? Think about the temple. The temple was the icon of Judaism. In fact, God told him how to build it. And human beings are all into structures. We're all into buildings, right? And the Jews have one of the grandest. Jesus wasn't impressed. He said, destroy this thing in three days and I'll raise it up. Now, he was honoring that it all spoke And led up to him, but now that he was here, it was no longer needed. People were more important. What about the Sabbath? Nothing is holier than the Sabbath. In fact, you can't go to your grave until you read Abraham Joshua's book, The Sabbath. He talks about the intersection of time and eternity. He talks about... The simplicity of a day set aside where there's no commerce. He talks about the intersection of two worlds. He talks about the Sabbath being joy, rest, and holiness in this life and the other. But as, for, as grand as the Sabbath was, Jesus said it was created for man. Man, not for the Sabbath. The showbread. We could go on and on. Jesus had no time for things religious. He had tons of time for people. And people that were marginalized and cast off were lepers and women And people that were defiled and ceremonially unclean. And not of Israel. And we see the heart of God over and over again. And here in Revelation chapter 7, as the four horsemen ride out and devastation comes on the earth, we see a group of people that God remembers. Now there's two groups here. We'll start in chapter seven, verse one, where he identifies. And John must have been startled by this because he's Jewish and he's like, "Oh my gosh, here's the tribes of Israel." And there's twelve thousand from each tribe. And remember, God chose this nation. He chooses Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve, and he he brings them out of Egypt, and they build a temple, and the temple's destroyed, and he brings them out of Babylon, and then the Romans destroy the second temple, and for 1948 years these people are scattered. This tiny people group. I think there's only 15 million Jews today, scattered all over the globe. And one of the questions you have to answer is why have the Jews survived through the ages while other civilizations have come and gone? Look up at the screen. Whenever I take people to Israel, I go to the Jewish quarter. And there's a uh, friend of mine called Moshe and we have a cup of coffee and we catch up on things, and we debate. He's Jewish, and, but he's read the whole New Testament. But he sells this T-shirt. Civilizations, nations, and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish people. Egypt, the Philistines, Syrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantine, Crusaders, Spanish, Nazi, Soviet Union, they're all gone. Iran's there, question mark. The Jewish people, the smallest nation of the nations, but with a friend in the highest places, so be nice, okay? Some of those nations, the Assyrians, etc., cetera, uh, the Parasites, the Hittites, would have never heard of them if it wasn't for Israel. So you have to answer this question, and then you have to answer, how does this tiny people group affect the way everyone lives and feels and functions? 27% of all Nobel Peace Prizes have been won by Jewish people. Why have they survived? Why have they thrived? The Jewish people are one of the great proofs God's existence. And in the end times, in this seven-year period, God is going to save and bring revival to the Jewish nation. There's 144,000 listed here of Israel. Now, here's where in the book of Revelation you have to make a decision. There's three decisions you have to make. One is the book of Revelation literal or allegorical. Number two You have to decide, are you going to follow the divine outline where John had to write the things he had seen, the things that are, and the things that will surely take place? Or is it just all history? And the third decision you have to make is what are you going to do with Israel? The decision you make there will alter how you look at the book. Here's what I want to focus on. God seals Israel. Now, here's what scholars have tried to do. And they always do this, and it's sleight of hand, they'll say, well, Israel's not Israel. They try and play this game. Israel's the church. Wait a second, we just saw the church in chapter two and three. So why is Israel back here? And by the way, the church is gone. Why is Israel separate from this other group we're going to see that come out of every nation, every tribe, every people, every language? Let's focus on the fact that God seals them. It brings great comfort to me. The only other people group you and I have to look at to see how God dealt in the past with them is Israel. How God dealt with them is how he'll deal with us. And I look at this and I think it's wonderful. You know why? It proves that God remembers. God never forgets. We're prone to that, right? There are days where I think God forgot all about me. He's down in Washington, D.C., He's in Rome. He's in Jerusalem. He's with the power brokers of the world. But man, things are going on in my life. God must have forgotten. God never forgets. Scholars get in here and they say, Oh, this isn't Israel. They look at the tribes and they say, No, these are the Danish, the British. You know, they, they do all these gymnastics. Well, look at your Bible. No, these are the tribes, and he gives us all the tribes. This is Israel. And it says they're sealed. You know what that means? It means God has put a marker on them where no one can touch them. They're his. It's very important. It's like Job. Remember Job? Satan comes and says, skin for skin, a man will give all he can for his life. Let me touch Job. And God says, all right, you could touch him. But God had Job sealed. And these will die in the tribulation. See, see, we have created a God that doesn't really exist. Many of us were raised with a God who will always get you out of a circumstance. A God who will always answer in the affirmative. That is not the God of the Bible. They will die in the tribulation, but they're sealed. They're marked by God. The beautiful thing is that 2 Corinthians tells us that you and I are also marked by God. It says, for all the promises of God in him, in Jesus, are yes and amen to the glory of God, who has sealed us... And given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word is a down payment. How do I know I'm a believer? I have the Holy Spirit. That's my down payment until I get to heaven. Now, we all want to experience the presence of God, right? I mean, we want to be a presence of God church. We want to be a church where you feel the presence of God. No one believes more in the presence of God than I do. But can I tell you your Christian experience will not be 24 hours a day, seven days a week, experiencing the presence of God? There will be those moments. And then there will be the mundane, ordinary times of our day, and it doesn't mean the presence of God is not there. I'll give you an example. If you're sitting in a room that has perfect temperature, no one looks at each other and says, this temperature is perfect. Because when the temperature is perfect, you just take it for granted, right? The minute it's too hot, everybody complains. The minute it's too cold, everybody complains. What that means is we got used to it. That's why when you're a young Christian, you feel the presence of God all the time. It doesn't mean we're taking it for granted, it just means there's an abiding now. God abides with us. That's why Jesus would be with the disciples and then he would disappear. He would come into their lives and out of their lives. He was showing them whether he was there physically or not. He was always with them. He'll never leave us or forsake us. God's not far from any of us, Paul said. So the abiding presence of God is always there, and that is what the sealing is. I don't need Holy Spirit goosebumps. I like them. I don't need them to tell me that I'm sealed. I have the Holy Spirit. Pastor Bob, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Because I didn't have it for 21 years. I didn't have spiritual eyes, I didn't have spiritual ears, God didn't speak to me, the Bible didn't speak to me. For 21 years I did not live by the Spirit, I do now. And it's your down payment and my down payment of the reality that is to come. And so God has sealed us and He sealed these people and I find it so ironic. Because we're gonna read later in Revelation when we get to chapter 13. That the Antichrist causes both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads or their iPhone. I inserted that. (laughs) That no one may buy or sell except those who have the mark of the beast and the number of a man. And his name is 666. Everybody freaks out at 666. It's only the unholy trinity. After the rapture, there's going to be an upheaval, and there's going to be some form of technology and a one-world system, economically and politically, and there's going to be a mark and an identification. But you know what this tells me? That when Satan looks at you, he sees a number. He doesn't see someone made in the image of God. He sees a number. He sees a pawn in his great cosmic battle with God. And he's reduced man to a number. And anytime time we see regimes that, are, that, that he's empowered, man is a number. That's why the Nazis could dig trenches and put human beings in them and then just mow them down and throw dirt on them because they were only a number. That's the mark Satan wants to put on you. God wants to seal you. He wants to identify you. He wants to mark you that you're his and that you are known and he wants to commune with you. And God has this people group, the nation of Israel, and we're asked who is able to stand and certainly they're able to stand and then we see this other people group of every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. And they're two distinct entities. So is Israel Israel or is Israel the church? Israel is never the church anywhere in scripture. You couldn't give me one verse. Can I give you a few to prove out why God is sealing them? And why Israel is Israel? Second Chronicles. I, God, have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, the temple, that my name might be there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen till Jesus comes. No, forever. Forever. Psalm 48, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, the city of our God, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the city of the great king, God will establish it forever. The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Isn't this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Psalm 132, 13, the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. Psalm 137, 5, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Israel, the people of the land, mentioned 2,500 times in the Bible. The Jews mentioned over 1,000 times. And then the Apostle Paul. Only Paul could have written Romans 9 through 11. It is staggering theology. He writes in these chapters of his heart and his love for the nation of Israel, his desire that they would all be saved. He acknowledges they have a zeal according to... For God, but it's not according to knowledge that they're ignorant of God's righteousness, that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, and everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But through Jesus, right? There's not a name under heaven by which a man can be saved. But then he goes on and says, I say then, has God cast away his people? The answer is, certainly not. That should be enough. Has God cast away his people? No. Then how could the church have replaced Israel? Certainly not. For whom God foreknew. And then he goes on and talks about Elijah and, and so forth. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? No. But through their fault, to them to the jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And he talks about how we've been grafted in. We're that wild branch and we've been grafted in the olive branch. For I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so that all Israel one day might be saved. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 24? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then God will again begin to work through Israel? Israel has a glorious day coming after deception where there will be a great ingathering, 144,000. I don't think this represents all Israel. I think they are evangelists who kind of get things going. And then there's a great worldwide end revival that no man can number. Last spring when we were in Israel, I always take the last day. I I used to come right home and preach here. Now I kind of take a day to decompress. So I was on the beach in Tel Aviv and I picked up a book called Jacob's Legacy, written by David Goldstein, A Genetic View of Jewish History. This is way over my pay grade. It's all about Y chromosomes and DNA. I didn't understand most of it, but listen to the concept. Uh, This Jewish guy just was blown away. He's in Caesarea, if you've ever been there. It's a theater that still exists that Herod built where Jews and Christians were persecuted and looks out to the sea. And uh, he was watching a, a Jewish rock concert there. And he was just looking at all these Jewish kids dancing and how the Jews were back in the land. And he was looking at what he called the improbable magic of it all. How did this all happen? And he was looking at the different tribes, specifically Levi mentioned in verse seven here, how there are still in Jerusalem today people that know they're of the tribe of Levi. They're Kohatites. They're of the priestly tribe. Now, the tribe of Levi were all males They all worked in the temple, and they had no peace in the land. So they were different than anyone else. And he goes through all this work and basically shows, in his belief, that you could still identify genetically a priest today through chromosomes. Unbelievable. Now, I don't know if it's true, but it's kind of incredible. Here's where I'm going. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter. God knows who they are, and God's going to regather them. And if you don't believe he will, how did he regather them now? The entire lot in the land. God knows who they are. He knows who's his. He who scattered Israel is going to gather them. And he's going to gather this other multitude from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. Now here's where we're going. If you want to see the heart of God, he longs to save. And here's what he's going to do. Verse 16, they're never going to hunger. They're never going to thirst. The sun will not strike them. They just went through a horrific time, nor any heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. If you ask me the most difficult point in raising children I used to say that the two hardest things of raising children, one was potty training and two was teaching them to ride a bike. The teenage years are hard, the terrible twos are hard, but if you ask me the most difficult point of me raising four kids is watching my children cry. Now babies cry, but even then I was a softie. I was the one that was always running in, not Monica. You guys didn't know I was a softie, did you? But watching a child cry is devastating. Why? Because you bring them into this world and you want to inoculate them from heartache. Your whole child rearing is for them to avoid pain and suffering. And to watch a child cry is devastating. I remember when my daughter got glasses at six years old, I was devastated. There's an imperfection in my child. How could this be? But to see them cry, to see them Suffer heartbreak, to see them bullied, or to be part of a breakup, or loved ones die, is so difficult. And I look at this verse, and it says, "God will wipe away every tear from the eyes." Let's just start with the Jewish people. Let's look at their valley of tears. What was it like for God, who created a garden of abundance and gave them everything for life and godliness, and all the trees in the garden? What was it like? then for God to drive them out of a garden? What's it like for a parent to have to put a child out of the home because of drugs or alcohol or whatever, a child they have reared? What was it like for God? What was it like for God when Cain killed Abel? What was it like for God when Hannah had no children and when David sinned with Bathsheba what was it like in Psalm 137 when they said, we sat and we wept by the rivers of Babylon because they lost the temple and they lost the nation of Israel? What was it like for God? What was it like for God when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was it like for God when Rachel was weeping? What was it like for God when they put gold stars in Germany on Jews and brought them to a holocaust? What was it like for God? And you see, this is the God of the Bible, not the God that we fashion, right? Somehow, the God of the Bible, like we read in Job, had to watch these things come to pass. But we know what it was like for God because we read in the Psalms that he has every tear in a bottle. And here's the funny thing about tears. Scientists don't know why we cry. They know about basal tears. They know about reflex tears. In other words, if you get a piece of wood in your eye, you'll tear up to get rid of the wood. We we understand the eye needs moisture. We understand those tears. Scientists do not understand emotional tears that are triggered by feelings of joy and sadness. Darwin said tears had no purpose. And if we're only material, he is right. David said, my bed is filled with tears all the day long. Psalm six five said, they who sow in tears will reap in joy. And God has all our tears in a bottle. What does God think of sorrow and pain? Jesus wept. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, not because Lazarus died, but because man would ever have to go through death or suffering or loss. Jesus wept for the human race. And there's a God who's not absent from our tears, but who longs to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there's a day coming when the Jewish nation and these multitudes will be saved. Who's able to stand? The Jewish nation. There's going to be revival. Who's going to be saved? Look, it says here, a multitude no man can number. See, we always think our tribe's so small. There's going to be a great revival in the midst of this struggle. You say, Pastor Bob, how could that be? I thought the church was removed. Yeah, the Holy Spirit restraining through the church is gone. But we're going to read later in Revelation that an angel preaches the everlasting gospel. And then what about what we left behind? We left books behind, sermons behind, uh, information behind. Uh, When I used to teach Revelation, there was no internet. Now we've left podcasts and websites behind. Um, Look up at the screen. (laughs) This used to be sold... In my church's bookstore. This is a little thing in case of rapture, break glass. You put this in your house. When you're missing, someone goes in, breaks the glass, reads about the rapture, they get saved. We had zeal, It was a court? You know, I don't know how much knowledge we had, but we had zeal. The good news is multitudes will be saved. Why? Because God longs to save Nicole Cliff might have been named the person least likely to become a Christian. She wasn't hostile to Christian or Christianity. No, Nicole had become an atheist since her college years and thought her Christian friends suffered a benign delusion that probably helped them deal with life. She agreed with Dawkins. Nicole wasn't afraid of dying either. She actually found the idea somewhat reassuring in its finality. She had no deep sense of untapped longing. In fact, she seemed to have it all, a good marriage, children, a budding vocation, as a co-founder and co-editor of a website. Nicole Cliff wasn't a likely candidate for conversion. But one day she became worried about one of her children and found herself saying aloud to no one in particular, be with me. She quickly shook it off as an aberration and the situation with her child resolved itself. But then other strange things in Nicole's life began to happen, detailed in an article in recent Christianity Today, uh, started happening to her. One day, she was surfing the web and c- came across an obituary f- by Christian f- of Christian philosopher Dallas Willard. It was written by Pastor John Ortberg, who was the father of two of Nicole's friends. Intrigued, she clicked on it and read this passage. Someone once asked Dallas if he believed in total depravity. He said, I believe in sufficient depravity. What's that? I believe every human being is sufficiently depraved, and then when we get to heaven, no one will be able to say, I merited this. Watch what happened. The words brought Nicole to tears, and that was just the start of a pattern. Later that day, she writes, I burst into tears again. Then the next day, brushing my teeth, falling asleep in the shower, feeding my kids. I would just burst into tears. Stunned by these sudden uncontrollable motions, Nicole tried to get to the bottom of them. She bought a book by Dallas Willard and cried again. She read another one by Lou Smeads and wept again. Knowing this couldn't go on forever, Nicole emailed a Christian friend to talk about Jesus to find out what in the world was going on. In the days leading up to the appointment, Nicole regretted asking. But in the hour before the two would talk, she knew she believed in God. She knew she'd become a Christian. When the call came, Nicole turned her told her friend what had happened, and the two laughed and prayed, and the atheist who was, was no more. What happened during that hour was the natural culmination of my coming to faith, Nicole says. I had been cracked open to the divine. I read books that I would have laughed at before the cracking, and the stars lined up, and there was a God, and I knew, and I said it out loud to a third party, and then I giggled. Nicole came to Jesus without apologetics or heavy theology. God uses all kinds of means and all kinds of people to draw unbelievers to himself. Augustine's long journey through philosophies and life experiences, for example, came to a culmination in faith when his pagan heart was touched by a child who chanted the simple words, take up and read. Oxford professor C.S. Lewis came when he could no longer shut out what he called the Hound of Heaven. As Lewis wrote, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last to come upon me, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and Lewis said he knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected, and reluctant convert England had ever seen. Today we sang a song, and the words just fit like a glove. There's no shadow you won't light up, there's no mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. And the reason that resonates, and the reason the story resonates, is because when I walked the aisle of faith and said the sinner's prayer, I was bawling like a baby. Six foot seven, All-American basketball player, I am crying my eyes out. There was a little old woman, 80 years old, she looked at me, she said, son, those are the tears of the Holy Spirit, those are the tears of forgiveness. And don't tell me that God didn't give us tears for a purpose, he did. And one day he's going to wipe away every single tear. And we don't live in that day. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to godly people. And if you look at the arc of human history, at any time the Jewish people, you could have said God doesn't exist. When they went to Babylon, you could have said there is no God because he would never allow them to go to Babylon. When the temple was destroyed, you could have said there is no God. Why would the God allow the Romans to destroy the temple? Why would God allow a holocaust? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow that? Give God enough time. All the questions get answered. They're in the land. Jerusalem's their capital. And in the end, all Israel will be saved. God saved the best for last. And what he did for Israel, he'll do for us. He's faithful and he's just. Judgment is his strange work. What he longs to do is save. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is what Joel talked about. that Your men will have dreams and visions and your women, and this will be the spiritual activity until the sun goes out and the moon turns in blood. In other words, in this entire age, God longs to save, and he will. And we're here, and God's doing a miraculous work around the world. Don't let anybody convince you that God's not on the move. He is in profound ways.